Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are going to talk about TikTok therapists. I want to start off by differentiating between what I call TikTok therapists and therapists who are on TikTok. I think the latter category of therapists who are on TikTok are people who work in the field of mental health. They use social media, maybe even just for their own private enjoyment. They might make some professional content, but if they do do that, the content, the professional content they're making on something like TikTok is separate from maybe like their private practice or their their agency work. What I am referring to as TikTok therapists are therapists who are also on TikTok, but perhaps don't have as many boundaries between their professional work and their TikTok audience. And it is with this group where we get into some gray areas around ethical conduct, what is therapy versus what is not therapy, and the ability for people to like consent to services. So I am going to use this as an opportunity to talk about some of those things, talk through why I think having certain frames and boundaries around therapy is so important, why it's also mandated by legal and ethical bodies, and what the heck does HIPAA have to do with any of that. So that is going to be the bulk of this episode. I hope that it is informative and you are able to enjoy the information that I share, even if it might seem like it's going to be a little bit boring up top. Before I jump into those areas of it, you're probably thinking to yourself, Grace, why the heck are you talking about this? This seems a little out of the blue based on what your content is usually about. And I will say, I don't think it's 100% out of the blue. I have done videos or uh, podcasts on TikTok trends before. My Pick Me Girls episode was based on uh, a trend that I was seeing on TikTok. And similarly, this episode is inspired by something that happened on TikTok. Now, I'm not going to say the person's handle because I don't want to encourage anyone to look them up. I think that they have apologized and are trying to move forward and I don't, I don't want to contribute to any more piling on to them. But essentially, there is somebody on TikTok who blew up over the weekend, at least on my algorithm, um, because she was representing herself as a therapist 
without being very clear about her licensure. And she had also in the past conducted TikTok live events where she did things that really borders on the line between like what is advice giving and what is engaging in therapeutic interventions on an app that has a very large user base of children under the age of 18. So needless to say, she was in some hot water. Multiple people apparently reported her to her licensure board. She has since made a video um, kind of addressing the situation and acknowledging like the mistakes that she made. And I will say for the time being, it seems like she is handling it as well as one could, given the like massive dogpiling that was going on. But I think that this, for me, was just a reminder that the general public is not always aware of what the guidelines are for therapists, and it can be really important for the general public to know that because when you have more information, you can be better protected and make better decisions for your mental health care. So that is really what inspired this episode, and yeah, I'm going to just go through my topics and hopefully... At the end, if you like have never been in therapy before or maybe have and felt like you didn't really understand what was happening, you know, hopefully this can be a little bit of a source of information for like, why is therapy done in the way that it is? Why are therapists like supposed to do things in a certain way um, and, and why that's important to protect the client? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, so let me start off by just talking a little bit about HIPAA. If you have never heard of HIPAA before, HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. And this was a law that was passed, obviously, in 1996 in the U.S. that created this kind of set of guidelines and standards for protecting patient health information, particularly in the era of electronic health records and sending health information over electronic means. So it really is a product of its time and the like way in which technology was starting to be used by health providers. And the idea was that HIPAA would institute these guidelines that would require not only people who are providing direct healthcare services, so you know, doctors, nurses, therapists, but anyone who works with any type of patient health information. So the people who do your medical billing are covered by HIPAA. The people who like work at the front desk and need to know your name so they can check you into your appointment are covered by HIPAA. Anybody who has access to patient health information is beholden by HIPAA rules. And the whole purpose is just to make sure that your information is kept private. Uh, patient health information, or also called PHI, is a specific category of information that usually includes identifying information like name, address, uh, date of birth, social security number, etc. 
the idea being that you want to protect any information that would be able to identify that, you know, person A belongs to healthcare data A, right? So anything that identifies you. So if you ever experience, so, and I think this applies to TikTok and therapy is like, if you ever hear people talking about a like client situation, like maybe you follow a therapist on TikTok who will talk about things like, uh, you know, when I work with clients that deal with anxiety, this is what we talk about. Or when I work with people with substance use issues, this is what we talk about. So that's not a, a HIPAA violation because it's not identifiable information. In fact, many of those stories might be like aggregates of multiple clients or experiences the therapist has. They are often very vague and leave out any specific information that could identify who the person is. And so that keeps things like in compliance. The The idea around HIPAA is not, is, is a really about this like identifying information because Companies, healthcare companies, insurance companies use healthcare data in a variety of ways, right? They, your insurance company uses healthcare data to figure out how much money they should charge you. Uh, comp- you know, organizations like Medi-Cal or Medicare use healthcare data to figure out like who is using their services and are they getting the right services through the, you know these government-funded insurance companies. So healthcare data can be used in a variety of ways. But the identifying information needs to be separated from it so that if for some reason or another, you know, Medi-Cal had a big data leak, we don't want people to be able to, like, identify who you are with your Medi-Cal profile. Now, we don't live in a perfect world. HIPAA violations happen a lot of the time. If you've ever sat through a HIPAA training, you have had to sit through the, like, whole shebang and spiel about what happens when a violation occurs. And so what happens? HIPAA existing does not mean that healthcare data never gets breached or leaked or whatever. But I think the main purpose of it it, from a client perspective is that it does provide clients with some sort of legal protection and legal standard if their healthcare data is breached in some way. So there have been, again, if you you look up like HIPAA violation cases, there are... um, there's unfortunately plenty of them, but there are situations where companies that had some sort of breach have had to like pay the constituents a certain amount of money and have had to notify this is what your this is which of your information was accessed and like how much of it got out. And it can also allow the client or the patient to then kind of have this legal standing to say like, hey man, you were supposed to protect my health information and you did not. Whereas before there wasn't as many Um, like legal standards for doing that. So that's like the, that is my smallest spiel I could do about HIPAA. There is so much about it. If you work in healthcare, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, there are tons of websites where you can look up. The CDC has a whole thing about what HIPAA means. In short, you can read the law online if you look up HIPAA, if you really want to go through the nitty gritty of it. But, you know, end of the day, the idea is that health information must be protected and especially an information that could be identifiable by other people. So what the heck does this have to do with TikTok? Obviously, if anybody is talking about clients on TikTok or any social media and is using identifiable information, then that is a violation of HIPAA. That healthcare data belongs to the client and therapists, doctors, nurses, etc. are not to use that 
data for anything aside from treatment. There have been a lot of cases of people getting in trouble through the HIPAA Act because they have posted things on social media that have protected healthcare information on them. There are cases of people posting pictures like on their Instagram or on their Snapchat where they take a picture of somebody's chart and it has their full name and birthday on it. And that is considered a breach of HIPAA because now you have sent out that person's it identifying information and connected it with their healthcare information, right? If you know that this nurse works at this hospital, then you know that this person is at this hospital and you're seeing their chart. Um, similarly, I think people have gotten in trouble for things like posting pictures of clients. That is a big no-no. You know, do not post pictures of clients <laughs> anywhere. Um, yeah, just like don't, don't. <laughs> because like somebody's face is pretty identifying <laughs> information, right? If people who know them don't know what their face looks like. Um, if a, a person tells a story about a patient that is too specific, so has enough information in it where you could reasonably figure out who this person is, that could be considered a HIPAA violation as well. Um, this was Interestingly, this came into play at the very beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if you guys remember back then because it has been so long, but at least where I lived, when the first detectable case of COVID was found in the county where I live, there was a, I worked for a, um, a county healthcare agency at the time, and they sent out an email saying there has been a case identified, but they could not give, and they could not even tell you like which hospital the person was being treated at, which city they lived in. They could just tell you that it was like in the county, but because there was only one person who had been found to be positive for COVID, set adding in any identifiable information made it a HIPAA violation. So people had no idea like where this, this case actually was unless you worked at like that hospital or wherever that person was. So if someone were to share a story on social media about a patient with like a very rare condition um, or, you know, in terms of mental health, like with a very rare mental health disorder, like DID or something where it's just, we don't see it that often you know, that could potentially be identifying. If you, a lot of therapists who work in like rural communities need to be very careful because their communities may not be very big. And so giving away even a little bit of vague information might make someone easily identifiable. So kind of like the spirit of following HIPAA means we don't give specific enough details where you could identify someone. Now, if you're like in a class to become a therapist, like your professors are going to talk about their clients, like that is what's going to happen because they're going to give you examples about ways in which they've used the interventions that they're teaching you how to use. They are going to talk about their clients in a specific, uh, sorry, in a non-specific, vague or aggregate way, right? They may talk about working with clients with depression in general and talking and maybe giving some examples of an intervention they've used but without giving you any specifics about the person same if you watch like ted talks by therapists um read books by therapists like if you're reading a book by a therapist and there is a specific case in it then they the reasonable expectation is that they've cleared it with that client asked for their consent and then changed any identifiable information that's necessary so like if you read I mean, honestly, one a classic example of this is Sybil. If anyone's ever heard that book, Sybil was about one of the first documented cases of DID or multiple personality disorder. And Sybil is not that lady's real name. Like they changed her name in the book 
because it was a book about like a real mental health case. Now, Sybil then gets complicated because later the real lady comes out and her identity was revealed and it wasn't super great. But that that is like how the expectation of if you're writing books about your client care that you use kind of like pseudonyms or you might you might not say like I treated this person in Anaheim, California, but you might say I treated them in Southern California so that it's not so specific. So if you are consuming social media content that is done by mental health professionals and they are giving information that seems to be a little too specific, um, then that might not be the most ethical or legal decision because it might be in violation of, of HIPAA. Now, in this case with this therapist that I, this TikTok therapist that I saw, there were clips of her doing TikTok lives, which is where, you know, you're like live streaming on TikTok and you can invite people on to like co-speak with you, which would be like guest hosts of the live. And so what she would do is she would raise like a theme, like social anxiety, and then invite on people from the chat to share about their experience with social anxiety or whatever the theme was. And then would give some therapeutic interventions. It was not quite advice giving. It was not quite full therapy, but she would talk with this person one-on-one in front of the live audience of the TikTok live and would have the person's face up on the screen with her because she would invite them to talk. Um, And that is a massive violation of privacy. Although the person who's coming on to be, you know, talk about these things may give their consent in the moment by like, you know, logging in and, and signing up for this thing, they're not informed when they're giving their consent. They they are not aware of all the risks and benefits of what's going on if they're to engage in therapy in this place. And they have no guarantee of privacy because there's literally a live audience watching them do this therapeutic intervention. And then the way that the clips got spread around where people would screen record them and send those clips around. So not only is it not private in the moment, but there's no long-term establishment of privacy because those clips can be shared over and over again. And the person who was participating in the therapeutic intervention in the client role then has no assurance for like their their privacy of their health information. Definitely not even close to the way that they would under HIPAA if they went to like a real therapist's office. And while, yes, you could make the argument that just talking about, like, social anxiety in general may not be the most, like, vulnerable information ever, it's still healthcare information, right? It's still somebody's, like, personal experience that they may not want shared around in this way. And oftentimes the purpose of coming to therapy is to be able to talk about things that you're not able to talk about with anybody else with the expectation that what you talk about is held in this space and isn't shared with anybody else. That's like the number one, that's the first thing we say to clients when we're working with them is like, this is how confidentiality works. So people have a right to their privacy being protected. And I think in a world that is increasingly more online, privacy is not always a guarantee, right? Like people get their Instagrams hacked all the time. People get their emails hacked all the time. Like Everywhere you walk, people have like ring doorbells and might be filming and you're in the background. Like privacy is very hard to maintain. And so as healthcare professionals, mental health care professionals, like the least we can do 
is carve out a little bit of a place that is private for our clients. And doing therapy on TikTok Live is 100% not the way to guarantee privacy. Okay, so the next thing that I want to talk about is the idea of assent versus consent, because many of the people in this therapist's lives and many of her fans on TikTok are people who are under the age of 18. And in the U.S., in the U.S. like legal system, the age of 18 is where con- the, the legal age of consent. And this is not just for consent to like sexual activity, but this is like consent to participate in medical procedures, consent to participate in any other type of legal activity, like, I don't know, suing somebody or like, you know, getting legal advice, like all of those things, you need to be over the age of 18 to consent. Same with research. Like if you're conducting research, you are not allowed to do research on people under the age of 18 unless they have a caregiver who can provide the consent from them. Because in like the legal system's eyes, someone under the age of 18 cannot provide legal consent. So if you work with children in terms of mental health, there is this idea of getting assent. Assent is in agreement of someone who may not be able to give legal consent, but it's there as close to legal consent as they can get of saying, like, I agree to participate in this activity. So if you're going to take your 12-year-old to therapy, you are the parent, you, ha- you are the one who's providing informed consent and saying, like, I understand what therapy is, I understand that I'm required to pay for it, I understand... Like, you know, kind of what the, the frame here is, what the confidentiality looks like, what the reporting looks like. Like, I understand that. The child, the 12-year-old, is going to give, needs to give assent, which is saying, like, I understand to the best of my ability what is going on here. I understand that, like, this person is my therapist and this is what is going to be asked of me. And I, like, agree to participating in this activity. So although it is not, like, it's not to the same legal standard as consent, it's still like giving kind of the buy-in of the person who can't legally consent. It's the same concept for um, people who have had certain like rights stripped of them. So people like under conservatorships um, who maybe have had their right to take to make their medical decisions taken away from them. The expectation is that the person who is conserved is giving like enthusiastic assent to participate in an activity even if they are not giving the legal consent. Now, this is not a a blanket statement that this, like, idea of informed consent only applies to 18-year-olds in terms of mental health care. In fact, the state of California actually has quite a few, um, like, exceptions for children of certain ages to get certain types of treatment, even if their legal guardian or parent does not consent. The carve-outs for this, so if for a child under the age of 12, are able to access pregnancy and pregnancy-related care, family planning services, and sexual assault services without parental consent. So if a 11-year-old has experienced some type of sexual assault, they can get services for that. This might include like um, crisis counseling or, you know, stabilization services, but they can get those services without a parent needing to be notified. Now, This would also trigger mandated reporting laws in a different way, which ultimately might end up, you know, the parent finding out. But that's a separate thing. But the the child can access those services. If a child is over the age of 12, 
they can have access to those three types of care without um, parent consent. They can also access treatment for sexually transmitted infections, a substance use treatment, mental health outpatient care, um, and then the other three. Uh, children under the age of 18 do not, are not able to get access to things like psychotropic medication, so like Lexapro, things like that, methadone, convulsive therapy, so ECT or TMS, any type of psychosurgery or sterilization uh, procedures if they do not have parental consent. So there is like, there are certain things that are carved out that you would still need an adult to consent for. But like, if you are 13 in the state of California and want to get mental health services, you are like technically allowed to seek those services without uh, parental consent under Medi-Cal. It is crazy that there's like so many carve outs, but different and different states are different. So this is not applicable across state lines. This does not always mean that you will be like given services, but like there are some considerations that children may need certain types of services and are not comfortable with their parents knowing, especially if you think about like drug and alcohol counseling or um, like pregnancy care, right? Like children may not want their parents to know that they're going through that. So I just say that the the 18 years old thing is not always like a hard and fast rule. But the idea is, is that, you know, if a child is engaging in therapy, then somebody, some adult somewhere has provided the informed consent for them, particularly if the, you know, the services still need to be paid for. In this TikTok scenario where this person is inviting people onto a live who are by what I have seen, presumably children, as again, the majority of the audience on TikTok are children. And the clips that I saw appeared to be people who were, you know, maybe not under the age of 12, but appeared to be like adolescents, people under the age of 18. In those situations, those participants in the lives are not able to legally give informed consent. Now, I haven't seen like the whole videos of the live, so I don't know if the this therapist provided some sort of informed consent and set some boundaries about like, this is what I will be talking about, this is what I won't be talking about. But even if she did do that, then technically, especially depending on the state that she's in, then the people who participated in the lives are not able to legally give informed consent. And like, how informed can your consent be if you're like, scrolling through TikTok and you happen upon this live and like maybe you missed the first part where she set out the rules or maybe you weren't paying attention because you are a child and TikTok has ruined your attention span, right? Like there are are things that can get in the way. And really when we want, when we're giving consent, giving informed consent, like we want to be in a place where we can read through the documents we're being given, ask questions, like talk through these issues. And uh, TikTok live is just not going to be the place for that. And I've talked about informed consent in other episodes as well, but this idea really just is so important because people need to know what the risks and benefits are of engaging in a treatment, right? When you, if someone has cancer and is getting cancer treatment, the doctor is supposed to talk you through what the risks and benefits are of engaging in the cancer treatment, right? It's not just a, you've got cancer, let's go right to chemotherapy. They have to tell you like, what could go wrong because you things can go wrong there it's not a guarantee that you'll get this outcome if you've ever had your wisdom teeth taken out they make you watch that video about how your whole face could be paralyzed if you get your wisdom teeth taken out and then they ask you do you really want your wisdom teeth taken out that's informed consent you can't 
make an informed decision about participating in a service if you don't know what all the risks and benefits are. And I suffice it to say, don't think that the TikTok therapist is saying you might become more depressed if you participate in this TikTok live, right? I don't think the risks were being outlined in the way that they are when you participate in formal therapy. And this leads me to my final point about what are the risks of therapy and why does it need to be done in a specific frame? Therapy can be tough. It can be really hard. It can activate things that maybe had been dormant for a long time, particularly if any type of like trauma is involved or, you know, other types of like vulnerabilities are involved. I remember when I first started my clinical training, I had a supervisor tell me that she tells her ther- her patients in the first session that you might feel worse after doing therapy. You might not feel good, especially in the beginning, and I want you to know that. And I have maybe not exactly copied her <laughs> language moving forward, but that is something that I have talked to about with the people I work with of Therapy is not rainbows and sunshine and unicorns and you leave every session feeling like you have been helped and problems have been solved. There may be times where your therapist only has 45 to 50 minutes to work with you and you crack something open in the middle of that session and there isn't enough time to process the whole thing, problem solve the whole thing. Like you you may walk away with a lot of painful feelings from a session or Therapists can do things wrong and can harm their patients, can, whether it's, you know, from a small a scale as, you know, making an invalidating comment that hurts the patient's feelings to acting in unethical ways and crossing boundaries with a patient that can do irrevocable harm to the patient's life. And so because therapy can be so difficult and vulnerable, the therapist has to build in what some people refer to as the frame. It's the boundaries around the therapy, the way in which we contain the therapeutic relationship to therapy and not to any other type of relationship. Now, this can look different for different types of therapists, whether it's because of like what part of their training they're in, whether because of the modality they do, like DPT therapists might make themselves available in between session in a way that a CBT therapist might not. Psychodynamic therapists might tell you nothing about themselves and have the blank slate approach, whereas others who are more in the modern relational era might, you know, share more about themselves in in a way that is relevant to the therapy. So there's, I can't give you like a checklist of what the therapy frame looks like because it differs by individual and by modality. But what I can tell you is that the purpose of the therapy frame is to protect the client. Therapy, the therapeutic relationship is very different from anything else, right? Like your friends, it's a two-way street, right? Hopefully your friendships are two ways. Like you tell them stuff about your life, they tell you stuff about their life, et cetera, et cetera. With family, right? More of a two-way street. You may know everything about your siblings. You may want to know nothing about your siblings, right? But you still somehow know it all, right? A lot, most of our relationships are two-way wherein you know a lot about the other person as much as they know about you. Therapy is a very one-sided relationship. Your therapist knows almost everything about you, and you may know almost nothing about your therapist. Again, this might differ between people. Some therapists are much more open than others. Some modalities encourage sharing more so than others. But at the end of the day, 
the person who is doing most of the talking is going to be the client. So most of the information is going to be about the client. So it, it's already a one-sided relationship like that. There's also a power dynamic in the therapeutic relationship. The therapist holds the power in that relationship, right? The therapist is the one who is looking at everything from the outside, maybe making decisions about what they're going to say next, also holds power to like have you hospitalized, right? Or has to call certain reporting agencies in certain circumstances, right? There is a lot of power in that relationship. And by the client being the one who is doing the most opening up and being vulnerable, the power definitely sits in the therapist hands. So we protect the client. We build in our boundaries. We establish if we will text you or not, if we will accept calls at certain times, if we will email you or not. Like this, uh, we get down to the nitty gritty when we are thinking about the therapy frame. I can promise you that the good therapists are. (laughs) Like every interaction has the potential to have this power dynamic. And so the therapist should be carefully considering how they are going to protect the client in these places and build a frame so that the client knows what to expect when they come to therapy, are not surprised by anything that's coming up, and can have a place where they can get in touch with some of these like deepest, darkest, vulnerable parts of themselves and not feel completely unmoored, right? Have something to hold on to. But when you are doing therapy on TikTok, where the line between being a therapist and being an influencer seems to be very blurry, the frame is going to be a little skewed, right? And then when you're also participating in a pseudo-therapeutic relationship on a TikTok Live in front of many other people, the frame is going to get skewed even more because now who whose boundaries are for who, right? Like, are you boundaried against the chat? Are you boundaried against, you know, every person that scrolls through and views the live? Like, no, you cannot be. <laughs> and so it just leaves the person who's sharing in the client role a lot more vulnerable to things that could go wrong. And, you know, one thing that was maybe a little bit scary, maybe a little bit necessary that came out of this situation was that a lot of therapists on TikTok were sharing stories of when therapy was not done right and the consequences of it. And I don't want to go into too much detail because I didn't give a content warning up at the top, but it can be life-ending if therapy is not done correctly and without the proper like frame in place. And again, because of that power dynamic, the person who is liable for the client's life is the therapist. While yes, clients ultimately can make their own decisions and are autonomous, therapists hold a lot of power and can say and do things that might push people in certain directions. And if there is not a safety plan, a support plan, a backup, a line of communication, things can go very wrong. And that's obviously not just on TikTok or social media. Like if you ever go to the board of psychology or whatever the licensure board is in your state, they typically publish a list of like the naughty list, I like to call it, but it's the list of people who've had their licenses suspended. And these are people who have done unsavory, unethical, sometimes illegal things in real life with their clients, not on on Instagram or something. So it's this is not just a a thing that happens on social media, but I think that it can be exacerbated on social media because you can have access to anyone at any time. 
on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, right? I could be living in California talking to someone in New York and then immediately talking to someone in Oklahoma next, right? Like the state lines are diffuse. The international lines are diffuse. Like who has liability over what is very diffuse when we're online. And so it's really important that these protections be in place. And although telehealth has like grown a lot in the last few years, there are lots of rules about how to conduct therapy over the internet. And there needs to be platforms that are HIPAA compliant. You need to be licensed in the state where your client lives. If you are in different states, you need to have um, an awareness of the resources around where your client lives. If there is to be an emergency and you need to send them some help, like there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. And just inviting someone onto a TikTok live to talk about anxiety, you you don't have any of that information. Now, I don't think this girl, I, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't think this girl was inviting people on to talk about anything like too sensitive, like trauma or suicidality or anything like that. However, as someone who has worked in the field of mental health for several years now, people can be unpredictable. You may think that you are asking a client a question about their job or about, you know, how their birthday was. And then 15 minutes later, you are considering, do I need to send this person to a hospital? Like stuff can, can come up very quickly. I have had experiences where, uh, yeah, I didn't, it wasn't on the agenda to talk about how the person was doing in terms of like trauma re-triggering or suicidality or relapse in substances. Like stuff happens. Things are unpredictable. People, we're all unpredictable. I have bad days too and have, have definitely dropped bombs on my own therapist, right? So those things happen. You may not, you may have planned to have a group or an individual session about a specific topic and people come in and say different things. So I'm, I'm glad that she has stopped doing this. She's been very clear that she's not going to do it anymore. Well, at least for the meantime. And I think it's just in the long run, the longer you have opportunities for people to come talk to you in a role where you are calling yourself a therapist, the more opportunities there are for something unpredictable to happen. And I would hate for one of these children on TikTok to get into a situation where they are desperate, they are hurting, they are having truly awful thoughts, and they see an opportunity like, oh, I can hop onto a live to talk to a therapist because my parasocial relationship with this person makes me feel that they're safe, whereas if I called a crisis line, I wouldn't know who I'm talking to, so I can jump on this thing and tell them about these horrible things that are happening to me. That person may be miles, hundreds and thousands of miles away from you. They may not be qualified to deal with the topic that you're talking about. They may not have the training in it. Like you just, you just don't know. And at least in places like an outpatient agency or clinic or private practice or a crisis line, like there are procedures in place for what to do if things like that happen. There are supervisors and consultation opportunities and things built in. I'm not saying that therapists are perfect. Like obviously not, (laughs) obviously People mess up, but at least in more structured situations, there are back backups and recourses for a client if they have been harmed by a therapist. And I don't know what a legal recourse would be for a child on TikTok talking about their anxiety in front of their TikTok friends with a therapist. 
this lady claims that her lawyer okayed it, so Lord only knows. But that also just makes it more dangerous because then the client has no way to, like, at least get a little bit of justice or recompense if something were to go wrong. So long story short, TikTok therapists, please stop. Please. <laughs> please stop doing therapy on TikTok. It's it's fine if you want to make general mental health content. Uh, here I am doing it as well. I <laughs> love to talk about mental health. I love to talk about psychology. Like these things are fascinating. And I do, I'm very clear that this program is not a substitute for mental health treatment. Watching TikToks of a therapist is not a substitute for mental health treatment. And that should be very clear upfront from the beginning. It doesn't matter if you maybe thought you mentioned it, like you should be mentioning it multiple times. That's why there's a disclaimer that plays at the top of every one of my episodes because it needs to be very clear that I am not your therapist. I am not giving you mental health treatment and it's not a substitute. If you need mental health treatment, there are resources. That's why I put them in my link in my, I put them in my bio. I put them in the episode description. I put them on my website. Like I want to make it accessible to everyone who comes by this podcast to know where they can go for treatment because this is not treatment. And I think that that is sometimes missing from the TikTok therapists who don't make it explicitly clear what they are doing. It again, and it does not matter if they didn't say they're doing therapy. If they're not being explicit that they are not doing therapy, then the misunderstanding is on them and not on the client. So yeah, enjoy your mental health content out there, you know, Watch your TikToks about the seven signs of ADHD. They're probably all wrong. They are probably all false. But if you like to watch them, you like to watch them. But if you want mental health treatment, like, please seek it from a person who you know is licensed or is under the supervision of a licensed person and there is accountability in place if they make a mistake. You can go to my website for some resources um, for finding access to mental health care in your area. There are national helplines that can help with that. Um, And I encourage you to reach out to a qualified professional in your area if you are needing mental health treatment. And with that, I say thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it when you listen all the way through. And I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.